the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Company and other factors. Not a- the following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. We are Alexandra Greenlee and Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. We're happy you've joined us today. We are addressing this question of the mountains being leveled. Obviously, it's not speaking about leveling physical mountains. Every valley shall be raised up, every hill made low, the rough ground shall be become level. It's not speaking about a physical land that's going to be transformed. It's speaking about the hearts and lives of men and women, our lives. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. We find in Mark, the first chapter, let me read it for you. I'll begin with verse 4. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The definition for repentance is turning away from and no longer walking in. It is hungry sorrow for what I have done to offend the Most High God. It's coming before him and allowing him to level the mountain of pride in my life, to turn me from worldliness and wickedness of every stripe and nature and causing me to have all of the sin forgiven in my life. The word again is aphemy, meaning to be removed from my life. This message of John the Baptist is in preparation for entering into the wonderful, beautiful, majestic kingdom of God that Jesus was coming to proclaim. We call the gospel of Jesus the good news, not the good news of John the Baptist preaching a, a message of repentance. The gospel is what Jesus came and proclaimed. I want you to be able to enter fully into the gospel of Jesus Christ, into the kingdom of the living God, not halfway, not partially. I want us to be able to enter in totally and completely and fully being transformed into new people, giving ourselves utterly and completely to Jesus Christ having as the very cry of our heart a hunger for more of God, experiencing the supernatural presence of the powerful Holy Spirit, seeing the sick healed, the dead raised, the proclamation of the gospel going out, seeing countless numbers of Muslims transformed out of the ungodly religion of Allah and swept into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I want to see the ungodly repent before God. I want to see the church people who are lukewarm 
not to be vomited out of the mouth of Jesus, but set ablaze, filled with zeal and eagerness to be with Jesus. Now, Matthew talks even more about this. I want to share it with you. Matthew expands this. In chapter 3, verse 2, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same. And then we find in verse 6, Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. They were not baptized before they had confessed their sins and repented of those sins and turned away from them. Then, He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So what you're saying you're sorry for as you recognize your worldliness, as you recognize the anger, the bitterness, the lust, the pornography, the alcohol, the pot, the cocaine, as you recognize the way you have sought for ambition's sake, the love of money, the gossip and the bitterness of your soul, as you recognize the hardness of your heart and how you have held to yourself, as you have ruled over yourself and not submitted with humility, without a teachable spirit, as you recognize this and it begins to be apparent to you He's saying, produce fruit now in keeping with this recognition of what's happening in your life. I would add here, uh, we don't want to mistake um, when we talk about repentance and producing fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not merely abstaining from a few gross outward sins. We're not seeking only a perfection that's purely inward. But we're seeking a perfection that also has to do with how we treat other people. And I'm trying to find, I think it's in Luke, there is a place where John the Baptist is asked, well, what fruit should we produce? Do you recall where that is? But John the Baptist's reply is he says, for example, to the tax collector, he says not to collect more than he is owed. He says to the Roman soldiers not to use force, not to use their position of military power to extort others. So very much when we come to the command of repentance, if we're talking about how we relate to other people. And we find this likewise in the Sermon of, on the Mount. Much of what Jesus lays out of the example of how we're to live has to do with our interactions with other people. It's found in Luke, the third chapter. Thank you beginning with verse 10. This is Luke 3, beginning in verse 10. The crowds asked John the Baptist, what then should we do in order, in other words, what should we do to show the fruit of repentance? John the Baptist answered, whoever has two shirts must share with the one who has none, and whoever has food must do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more than you are authorized to collect. 
Soldiers asked, what about us? What should we do? He answered, don't cheat or harass anyone and be satisfied with your pay. So what's interesting, none of these examples have to do with, you know, what we would consider the predominant sins, you know, of alcohol or drugs or pornography. Obviously, we should not do those things. But there is a much bigger picture here, which is how we relate to one another and a restoration of peace and wholeness with our relationship with ourselves, but also with our relationship with others and ultimately with God. This message is one of radical change of direction. It means no longer being self-centered or self-seeking, but now totally seeking after Jesus Christ and allowing him the freedom in our hearts to do everything he wants to do. Now, I was thinking, praying early hours of this morning about this issue, and I just felt very impressed that it was not enough today to talk about the issue as we have, but rather to speak about how to pray, because the whole answer is going to be found as we pray. Not casual chit-chat prayers, but serious, honest, straight prayers. Prayers that extend over a period of time. Jesus said, could you not even watch and pray for one hour? I find that prayer doesn't start until after the hour. I'm so often so full of my own noise that it will take an hour to get quiet before God so I can begin to hear what he wants to say to me. I don't like that. I'm praying about that. But I recognize that it's true. So there was a, a wonderful evangelist, a holiness evangelist, in the early 20s by the name of Guy Bevington. I've shared some of his material in the past. Today we'd like to share with you a portion that addresses addresses itself to those who call themselves Christians but who are formal and lukewarm as he calls them to pray. We're reading from Remarkable Miracles by Guy Bevington, also known as G.C. Bevington. He was an American holiness preacher in the early 1900s, did a lot of ministry in Kentucky, Ohio, he recounts this story. He says, On Sunday and Monday, I felt I must go, but said nothing. I preached, or rather tried to preach, on Monday night. But the meeting was all prayer and praise, and all the time I felt that voice saying, Go, go, go. Well, I supposed, of course, the go meant to go to my next meeting. The next morning I told this to John and those who were there. John said, Oh no, Brother Bevington, your work has just begun here. We are all planning for the greatest meeting that has ever been in this community. Well, I retreated to my usual place for solving problems, the Hamo, but from the first there was still that go. After three hours, I had to give in to it. The next morning, John hitched his horse up to the jolt wagon to take me, as we supposed, to the depot some twelve miles away. I bade the wife and dear faithful young Frank goodbye. The wife kept insisting. I cannot believe your work is done here, and would not bid me goodbye. 
I was a bit confused myself as I'd only had about a third of my anticipated railroad fare, but off we went. We'd gone about three miles when John looked back and said, I declare I believe that is Jim. I said, who is Jim? Now I've left out some things that will need to be explained here. When John's first, when John's wife first wrote to me to come out and hold a meeting, she stated that there were 14 sanctified people there, the father and mother of each of seven families. So on that first Saturday night, the last night I preached until after I was healed, I thought inasmuch as there were 14 sanctified people there, it would be safe to venture on a testimony meeting. So I turned the services over to their class leader. I could hear some then, but not sufficiently enough to clearly get all their testimonies. I could not settle myself with the ensuing proceedings, and finally said to little Frank, Who are these people who are testifying? Why, they're all members here. The superintendent, the class leader, and the officers of the church. Oh, they're all sanctified, Frank assured me. By the time the seventh one got up, I was in doubt as to their having a right to testify, and noticed a woman laying a quid on the bench as she got up. I suppose she felt the quid might bother or hinder the display she had planned. I endured until the ninth one, and could not stand it any longer. So I said, Mister, I did not feel clear, addressing him as brother, you just sit down. I don't have to sit down for you, came his hot reply. I rose to my feet, pointed my right index finger straight at him, and ordered, You sit down right there. I tell you, he dropped like a shot calf. He struggled back up to his feet, grabbed his hat, and started for the door. All but eleven followed him. All told, about some eighty people going out. The girl who had gotten sanctified in that home back of the village, and ten more remained. Well, I did my best at preaching, and then dismissed them. As we were going out, John's wife said, Now you keep behind me, as that crowd is all out there, and I don't know what for. We stepped off the porch and uprushed the man I had called down. Out of all the tongue lashings a man ever got, I got one of the strongest right there. I did not reply to him and just said, Come on, let's go. And we made our way on through. He and several others followed for some distance, calling me about all the names in the catalog of vengeance. Now I want to return to where John and I were in the wagon, and he had just said, I believe that is Jim. When I asked who Jim was, he answered, the man you called down at the testimony meeting. He's my cousin. I can see he is bareheaded and looking kind of wild, yelling for me to stop. But, Brother Bevington, you need not fear, as I have this loaded whipstock right here. I will protect you, even if he is my cousin. Well, Jim was a sight indeed. Here he came on horseback, yelling like a cowboy chasing a renegade calf. Stop! Stop! Wait! So John stopped. Jim leaped off his horse, rushed right up into the wagon, and threw his arms around me. Oh, Brother Bevington, pray for me. I have been in hell ever since that Saturday night. I said, Do you really want God? Oh, yes. I could tell he was serious. Drive up along the fence, I instructed John. We did so when John got down on one side of the wagon and I on the other. Jim began to pray with us, still up in the wagon. In about an hour, he burst out, Oh God, oh God, have mercy, have mercy, oh God, save me from this awful hell that I am rushing into. Then he cried out, Brother Bevington, come over here, come over here, 
Take my hand, for I am slipping into hell right now. Oh, come here quickly. I said, no, I won't come up there. You repent. I stayed at my post beside the wagon. Brother, I'm going to hell. If you had what you deserved, you would have been there long ago. Repent. Repent. I was determined he would pray it through. We were there by that fence all day long. Three times some of his relatives came along, but they could not get him out of that wagon. One of his cousins, a wealthy farmer, came along with a flock of sheep and called out to John, Who was that in the wagon? That's Jim. What in the world is he doing in there? Jim yelled out, I am getting God. The cousin made all sorts of threats against me and John too, but Jim stayed in his place until he prayed through. Then he jumped out hollering like a coon dog, grabbed me and landed us both flat on the ground. He got right back up and carried me all around there for nearly an hour. Finally, he got on his horse and left, rejoicing as he went. Well, I said, I can't make any train now, so I guess we'll go back to your house. That is just what John was expecting. Now many will say, Brother Bevington, I thought you were going to the depot. Now how would God lead you for the depot and then not get you there? Pay attention, for here comes an important lesson for all. We must remember that we are only human beings, and God does not always reveal his plans ahead of time. Instead, he just leads us as he sees best. God knew he couldn't undertake to explain to me that he would have to get Jim out there in that wagon on a public road, subject to all the embarrassing scenes it would be necessary for him to go through in order to knock his churchianity out of him. Only God knew what it would take to shake Jim loose from his long membership, the testimonies he'd been giving for ten years, his antipathy against the holiness preacher who broke up the peaceful family, his good standing in the Methodist Church, and all arising therefrom. If God had undertaken to explain all this to me, he would have landed me in the brush. Consider God's wisdom. He told me to go and allowed me to interpret the go, as I saw fit, as that would make no difference to him as long as I did go. Then he just took a shortcut to make the many points necessary to getting Jim saved. God was well aware that I was nowhere nearly done in that vicinity, but he knew it was necessary to get that leader completely transformed and broken all to pieces so that God could use him. I want to interrupt the reading. <clears throat> I'm learning a very valuable lesson. It's been going on now for some time. And that lesson is that God, in his sovereign mercy and grace, moves outside of me to accomplish what he wants in my life. He'll give direction. He'll bring people. He'll arrange circumstances all of it in order to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. But he does this outside of me. For many years, I used to think that God would speak to me, empower me, and then I would do what he wanted me to do, and that would bring about the result that he desired to achieve. That is true sometimes, but most of the time it's not true. God wants to move outside of me. He wants to move sovereignly on your heart. 
He wants to arrange circumstances in your life that will cause you to suddenly come face to face with reality and recognize that you are a long way away from Jesus. He will move in the most mysterious ways, the most unusual and unexpected ways to confront you and others to bring about his purpose and his will. I mean, look at this story. God sending Brother Bevington out, thinking he's going to the railroad depot to go to his next meeting. But in fact, it was to get Jim out on that road where he would be humbled before all of the passerbys as he sought after God. His rebellion and rejection of God had been very public. And now his confession and his searching after God is very public. And then there is such explosive joy when he moves through that rebellion in his heart and utterly gives himself over to God and the power of God comes upon him. That's why he leapt out grabbed Brother Bevington and danced for an hour with him. This is the explosive joy that comes to us when we have prayed through. Let's read further. Now as Jim was on horseback, he could make better time than us. When we drove back into John's barnyard, here came Jim and his wife rushing up. She jumped off the horse and sobbed out, Oh, Brother Bevington, forgive me. I have been in hell ever since that Saturday night. We went into the house, where we all fell on our faces in the dining room. Thus began one of the most remarkable seven weeks of my life, right there in that man's house. I never took off my clothes and never preached a sermon. I just lay day and night on my face, praying, weeping, groaning, pleading, imploring, beseeching and besieging the throne in behalf of that Methodist membership of 300 people. Some would get through and strike out for their relatives and friends. They would come back in wagon loads bringing provisions, feed, and even their cows. They would stay until the whole load got saved and sanctified. Then they would strike out after someone else. That kept up for seven weeks, day and night. No one ate but one meal every 24 hours, yet someone was out in the kitchen cooking all the time. I got such a burden that I could not get up, but just lay there wherever I was praying. They would come in at times and feed me like they would a baby. Well, they claimed there were over 400 down there, and most of them prayed through. Of all the times I ever saw this beat anything. Some were praying, others crying, others testifying others preaching, others shouting, others making restitution. I just lay on my face, bathed in tears. When it was all over, I looked as though I had gone through a right hard six weeks. I think the most remarkable case was that of Jim's wife, who had been of a real boisterous nature. Before this meeting, she would run and shout and yell when giving her testimony. She was the first to get through when she lay under the power of God some sixty hours. When she arose, she was so different. There was none of that bold, hilarious conduct. 
She was so meek, she just walked the floor, bathed in tears, wringing her hands. Not a word fell from her lips. She was like a little country girl of eleven summers. I tell you she lived salvation after that. She and her husband and many, many more lay there until they were sanctified. Of course, news soon reached the village that I had come back and here the people came. Even the preacher came and got sanctified, as did his wife and many of his members. So you see, it pays to mind God and trust him. I love to rewrite these experiences and do hope they will prove the blessing to many that they have been to me. Real, steady, unselfish prayer will move things. We need to mean what we say. Once a little girl said to her papa, who was saying that Jesus didn't mean all he said in the Bible, Papa, if Jesus didn't mean what he said, why didn't he say what he meant? Hmm. I shouted, Amen. That's reason. We've been sharing from Remarkable Miracles by Brother Guy Bevington. Jesus did say what he meant. And John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance. And he meant it. This story sounds very strange to our ears because we think, oh, we're so busy and we have so much to do. And we don't have time to lay on our face for any length of time and just pray and cry out to God. I can tell you, being a boy raised in a farming community and on a farm, there was always work to be done on the farm. There were always crops to be taken care of. There was livestock that had to be cared for. They brought their cows with them because they didn't want to have to go home and take care of them and leave the meeting. They had every reason not to be at that meeting. What was going on? They were being sanctified. What is that? They were being made entirely holy. Well, what does that mean? In simplest terms, to be sanctified means that I have crossed over from the realm of darkness fully into the realm of light. I have crossed over into Jesus, and he has even removed from me the old nature that constantly battles to cause me to walk into sin. Now, part of why the church is so powerless today is that we've not taken the time to be sanctified, to be transformed, to be changed, to be made like Jesus. But you see, if we're going to enter into the kingdom of God, we're going to have to be sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit. The easiest way to see this in the gospel narratives, as we shared at the beginning of this broadcast, John the Baptist came preaching repentance, a change of heart and life righteousness. That's what we might call being saved. Whereas Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God was coming, which was distinctly something separate. So John the Baptist said that he came baptizing with water and that one would come after him who baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is what we're talking about when we talk about being sanctified. It's 
not just repenting, as John the Baptist says, but it's then going the next step and entering the kingdom of God and receiving that full baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire for which Jesus came. And this full baptism, it came upon Jesus, who was without sin. He too responded to John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist tried to say to him, no, you should not come for baptism, Jesus. He knew he was the Son of God. You should baptize me, Jesus. But even Jesus came to be baptized because John's baptism is the opening of the door into the kingdom of God. It's this repentance that transforms and changes a man or a woman. When I look at this story in Matthew, the third chapter, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It is God's work. Salvation is God's work. It is a supernatural work. But it is required that we produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. What does he mean by producing fruit? A changed behavior. A change in behavior. If you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. Now, let me be very specific about this. I speak with many people who are in a great struggle in their life. I ask people the question, are you walking clean before God or are there issues in your life? And then 99.9% .9 of people that I speak with will say, oh, I'm still, I still have issues. I'm not there yet. Well, if you're not there yet, when will you get there? <clears throat> Pardon me, when, when will you make that breakthrough and how will you do it? How will you begin to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And what I see happening in the lives of many, many people, including those who call themselves Christians, <clears throat> is that as they walk this out day by day, it's like they have a, a gray cloud over their heads. They're always struggling. Things are never joyful. Things are never happy. Instead, it's, oh, it's hard. Well, I can tell you why it's hard. It's hard because you've not been sanctified yet. You've not crossed over and walked in the joy of the Lord and understood what it means to enter into his kingdom. But you see, as long as I can call myself a Christian and be miserable, then I can still justify my anger or my sin. It's 
worth pointing out here the scripture that you that you've just read it says produce fruit in keeping with repentance so repentance is not just something an initial act and then we say okay well i repented and then how you live from there on is kind of up in the air and what we saw in this brother bevington story that we just shared from remarkable miracles these were people who probably at, at some point in the past had had some kind of experience with the Holy Spirit, but they did not keep that experience for whatever reason. And the evidence that they had not kept it uh, came out, for example, with this man, Jim, who just really verbally abused Brother Bevington publicly and thought that he was completely justified in doing so. You'll recall in the book of Corinthians, it says not to uh, keep company with somebody who is a railer or a verbal abuser who says they're a Christian. So this is what I'm saying when I said earlier that it's very much not just a personal piety, but it very much includes how we relate to other people. So I bring this up because I do meet Christians who say they've been born again. They've had a, they have had some kind of experience with the Lord, but let's say that happened 10 years ago. Well, what is your experience today with the Lord? Is your experience today with the Lord consistent? Have you kept up what God started in you? Or have you in some way gone cold? Or have you become cynical? Is there something that you do need to get back to Jesus about and really make peace with him about? That's what we have just read in the story of praying through. It's where we take those issues to God and really work through them and find a resolution or a peace with God about them. And then that then transforms again our outward behavior. This is also what we find in Revelation when Jesus talks about doing our first works again. It's that consistency where our walk with Jesus it continues in that same truth and peace and love in which it started. And you can take those hours that Brother Bevington spoke about and try to spread those hours out over the next 10 years of your life. And so for those 10 years, what is your testimony? How hard it is to serve Jesus. How painful it is to serve Jesus. In the account of the Apostle Paul, he counts everything joy. He counts persecution joy. They're in the prison. They've been beaten. Their backs are bloody. They're in stocks. What are they doing? Are they saying to each other, Paul and Silas, are they saying to each other, boy, why would Jesus get us into this? This is miserable. I don't like this. No, they didn't do that. Sitting in the prison, they sing songs of praise and worship to Jesus. They are filled with joy that they've been counted worthy of suffering for the cross of Jesus Christ. And as they're in the midst of their singing and praising, the earthquake shakes loose all of their bondage. And they have the opportunity now to minister to a jailer and his family and bring them to Jesus. 
I'm tired of any Christian complaining and being miserable and not walking in the joy of the Lord. Because no matter what the exterior experience is, I know where I'm going. I've been sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy fills my heart. Does the outward experience of what's happening in the world match my joy? No, it doesn't. Because I'm in the world and there's a battle going on. There's a battle raging in the heavenlies and there's a battle raging over my life and over your life. But when a person is sanctified, when they've taken the time to pray through and begin to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, joy begins to flood a man or woman's soul. It's a joy beyond all understanding. It's not manufactured joy. Now, there are some who want to say, oh, you're saved, you can continue to walk in your sin, you just break your fellowship with God. Well, you know what? If my fellowship with God is broken, I'm not saved. When I'm saved, I'm saved from my sin, from my brokenness, from my anger, from my bitterness. I'm saved from treating others in an unfair and harsh manner. I'm saved to the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I walk in that freedom and in that joy. When Jesus, and I don't know how to explain this, when Jesus came and was baptized, he came up out of the water and the Spirit of God descended like a dove lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Have you heard Jesus say that to you? Is God, is our Father, is Jesus well pleased with you? If you have repented, you're producing fruit in keeping with repentance, if you have walked through this journey, you can take a long time or a short time. If you have honestly dealt with God, then we have a right to expect the Holy Spirit to come and baptize us. That's where I am right now. I'm standing by faith for the full baptism of the Holy Spirit. And some have scornfully written and said, well, how long has this been since you've been praying for the Holy Spirit? You know what? It's all in God's hands. It's my part to make certain that I've prayed through in my spirit, in my heart, in my life, so that I know of nothing that stands between me and Jesus that I earnestly seek after him and earnestly desire him. And so I'm spending this time reading the scriptures, 
praying, not giving myself to the foolishness of this world, I'm searching after Jesus. And he's meeting me. And it's glorious. In other words, we don't have to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in power of Pentecost to do what John the Baptist is telling us to do in preparation to enter into the kingdom of God. I fear that some of you today think you've already entered into the kingdom of God because you've intellectually said, I've entered into the kingdom of God. But you've never borne the fruit of repentance, humility, quietness of spirit, trust in the power and presence of God to do what he wants to do. You're not lukewarm. You're given totally to Jesus. And you're excited about it. I wish we had time today. Maybe next week we can do it. I'd love to hear from some of you who would call and testify, Pastor, I know what you're talking about. I've been sanctified. I've been filled with joy and happiness, and I'm excited about Jesus. Hmm. We need to hear some testimonies like that. It would be wonderful. I wanted to elaborate on something you just said. You said that we, that we can do this uh, work of leveling or this work of repentance that John the Baptist spoke about. And I just want to encourage you to do that uh, very practically. I mean, as he said, let him who has two cloaks give to him that has none. Maybe you have two winter coats. You know someone who doesn't have a winter coat. You give them your coat. Things like that. I have two suitcases and I'm going to be giving one to a friend this weekend. I would rather keep both my suitcases, but I'm happy that I do actually have a second one to give to him. Um, just things like that. Sharing your food. Maybe you cooked a little bit extra for Christmas or a little bit extra for New Year's. And you know of a family that di didn't have that luxury to actually have a Christmas or a New Year's dinner and you share it with them. And as you share, that gives you an opportunity to pray with those people. And it's so exciting as you keep doing this with the same people to see the softening of their heart, to see how they become more receptive. They even start to cry or to say, you know, that I come back anytime. I love seeing you. I love you. Thank you so much. It's really a blessing. And I just encourage you to not get discouraged or fatalistic or bitter about it. You very much can reach out and touch people and pray with them. And you'll see the Holy Spirit move in those interactions. Don't get discouraged and think you just have to sit and pray in your room for three hours and then you ignore the leadings of the Holy Spirit to, to go and do something for it's somebody you know. It's fruit. It's very much our actions. Yes, it's produced fruit in keeping with that repentance. The joy of our heart has been uh, over this Christmas season being able to give in small ways to worldly people. This Christmas, I didn't go and buy Alexandra a gift and wrap it up and give it to her at Christmas time. Why? 
because all of the money that was available, we chose to give to others. That was our heart cry. You see, when when we begin to see as Jesus sees, everything shifts and changes. Well, we're almost out of time for this broadcast today, and I want to lift up before you again a challenge, a financial challenge. And I asked you yesterday to begin praying about this. I'd ask you today to continue thinking and praying. One of our faithful listeners called and offered a $3,000 challenge so that we could cover the cost of December's radio and begin to cover the cost of January's radio. Uh, January radio will be just a hair under $4,000. So there's a $3,000 pledge if another or others match that $3,000. And yesterday I said, you know what, I wonder, as I prayed, is there someone listening to this broadcast who would like to match that immediately and simply give $3,000 to match this man's pledge? If you'd like to do that, will you call 877-534-0780? If you'd like to match that pledge, would you call and talk with our brother Kevin, who is the producer for our broadcast, at 877-534-0780. I'm not asking you to give something you don't have. But if you, like this brother, feel led at the end of this year and the beginning now of a new year to give to Pilgrim's Progress that we could continue this broadcast, would you call and match that $3,000? Next week, we'll need to do operatory if there's no $3,000 match and hold back on our teaching, which I don't want to do. I want to walk through this book of Mark with you. So, again, call 877-534-0780. That number again is 877-534-0780. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. We're Alexandra Greenley and Ray Greenley. Visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. We're also streaming live on YouTube right now. You can just search for National Prayer Chapel and also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That phone number again, if you'd like to call, is 877-534-0780. You can also go to our webpage, National prayerchapel.com <clears throat> and just click on the donate button. We check PayPal regularly and I thank the many who have given at the end of this last year, 2018. Thank you. Uh, my joy is seeing men and women changed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus and then opening their hearts and saying, yes, pastor, you have to stay on the air. This is a faith ministry. It's month by month. So thank you. Thank you also for the beautiful Christmas cards. 
and the gifts, the personal gifts. Those were very much appreciated. Thank you. Now, as we come to the end of this broadcast, did you want to say something? I just wanted to give out our address. <coughs> our mailing address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, that's P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Now, Lord Jesus, as we close this broadcast today, I ask that you will move as you did in Jim's life and heart in the life and heart of the people who are listening. And those who have not come through yet and are not living in the joy and the praise and the worship of being sanctified, I pray, Lord, you will come and do that work in their hearts, that you will show them the depth of their sin and cause them to cry out to you to be delivered and set free and brought into the joy of producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, thank you. We honor you and praise your name. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, brother, sister. We love you, and we'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.